The Magnificat. Father Dominic Faure's second talk at a retreat on sharing in Mary's joy. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Saint John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wanted to read for you a little paragraph, which is the number 124 of this exhortation, which in a certain way for me sums up in a few lines all that, um, not all, but most of what Christian joy is all about. Mary, recognizing the newness that Jesus brought, sang, My spirit rejoices. And Jesus himself rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. As he passed by, all the people rejoiced. After his resurrection, wherever the disciples went, there was much joy. Jesus assures us, You will be sorrowful, but your soul will turn into joy. I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And there's, there's a lot in this little paragraph showing the different dimensions of what is a Christian joy. First of all, the joy of Our Lady, and I will skip this one. We will look at it when we read the Magnificat, which is obviously the model of a joy for us, reminding us that if Our Lady is given to us as a mother, it is in order to educate us in this new life that Jesus gives us, in order to educate us, therefore, in, in, this, in using properly this new wine, and therefore this new joy that Jesus gives us. And indeed, that's probably one of the clear manifestations or fruits of any apparition of Our Lady eh, to, to the little ones, usually, uh, whether in Lourdes, whether in Fatima, whether, there's always, when she appears, there's always yeah, this tiding of joy in the hearts of those who see her. So I, I will skip this one. We will look at it in the Magnificat. Uh, but Jesus himself rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and remember, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit in seeing that the Father had chosen to share his wisdom with the little ones. We talked a little bit about it. As he passed by, all the peoples rejoiced. Eh? So the presence of Christ giving a new joy to his people. Eh? Um, that was the first uh, name of Christ. And you will call him Emmanuel, God among us. And the good news is that not only God has chosen to dwell among us, but even to dwell in us. 
He cannot be, in a certain way, cannot be closer to us than what Christ achieves because of the redemption. And therefore, what Jesus tells us, I will always be with you. And this joy not only of giving thanks to our Creator, but this joy of having this privilege of living constantly with God, with Christ. I'm always, always with you. And after that, Jesus assures us you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Uh, that's again the presence. I will see you again and your hearts will be joys. And no one will take away your joy from you. But it's also to be looked at in the light of this moment during the Last Supper, when Jesus speaks of the woman in the pains of birth, then she's in pain, and after that she rejoices because a child has come to life, has been given to the world. When Jesus speaks of his departure and then the resurrection, in between what takes place, this mystery of fruitfulness, he gives a new life, which is the mission of the church. So there's indeed the souls of the cross at the service, not only of this new joy of seeing Christ risen, but even together with it, and I was going to say even more than that, this joy of seeing a new life offered to humanity. And finally, the last one, and this joy, nobody can take it away from you, the joy of fruitfulness. And finally, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be new and your joy may be full is really the joy of the friendship that Christ offers to us. I call you friends because I told you all that I know, all that I heard from my father. So a friendship centered on the father being fully revealed, the joy of the light. So there's the joy of receiving mercy that's Our Lady, the joy of the presence, the joy of fruitfulness, and the joy of receiving the fullness of light. And in a certain way, the joy, therefore, of being fully alive, fully alive in receiving the fullness of the truth, fully alive in receiving the fullness of love, in remaining constantly with Him, fully alive in being fruitful with Christ, and all this lived in the radical littleness of the joy of constantly receiving mercy. And I wanted, of course, to reveal with you the way Our Lady expresses her joy in the Magnificat, a joy which was there in Our Lady immediately at the moment of the Annunciation, but which she manifested, she proclaimed in fraternal charity thanks to the encounter with Elizabeth. Which is important because again there are two dimensions of joy. Uh, the one that we keep inside and the one that we are called to manifest outside. In a certain way the one that we receive that's the one that we keep inside and the one that we give to others. So we could, uh, all those dimensions of joy that we have seen, the joy of receiving mercy, the joy of receiving the presence, the joy of receiving the love, the joy of receiving a fruitfulness, the joy of receiving the fullness of the light, again have themselves two dimensions, 
the one that we receive and the one that we offer to others in a certain way, the contemplative dimension of joy and the apostolic dimension of joy. And indeed, uh, what uh, Pope Francis has said several times in this exhortation, and even in the first one, that the mission of the Church is to continue the mission of Christ, that's uh, an old statement, eh? and the mission of Christ is to bring tidings of joy, but we can only give to others what we ourselves receive. So the mission of the Church and our mission for each one of us is to enjoy this joy of giving what we have joyfully received. So it's a, it's a joy square, the joy of receiving and the joy of giving, the contemplative and the apostolic dimension. So let's reread this, this canticle of Our Lady, this Magnificat that we all know well. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the lowliness of his servant. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant, remembering his mercy, according to his promise to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So first, dimension of the joy of Our Lady, it's a joy linked to adoration. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. It's really the little creature who joyfully praises and gives thanks to her Lord, to her Creator. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it's really there the joy in this radical dependence, not only of this radical dependence, not only of a creature depending on the Creator, but of a creature enveloped by the mercy of a Creator. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And for us, which is true, we always speak of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, it's interesting to see that Mary looks at God, and the one who, who is the source of salvation is the Father. The one who is the source of mercy is the Father through his Son. So the joy of a little one who not only receives everything as a creature, but the joy of a little one who has no right, and therefore who is not only constantly suspended to mercy, but who joyfully, who enjoys receiving mercy. It's interesting to see that a child, if he's aware of what he's going through, a child enjoys receiving mercy. We are claiming for the rights of the child. The child is never claiming for his rights. Uh, it is with time and with age that we find another joy which is not the real one which is to obtain justice but the real joy is not to obtain justice 
Because by definition, when we obtain justice, we remain in our own limits. We receive what we deserve to receive, and therefore we are joyful, which is very limited. While the joy of receiving mercy, by definition, has no limit. Because it's a joy which opens to us to whatever gift is offered to us and which leads us to, to receive and to grow totally beyond our limits. For he has looked upon the loneliness of his servant. It's a joy coming from littleness. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. Mary was immaculate. Mary immaculate never looked at herself. She was constantly in this poverty of depending on God and receiving from him who she was. And the first moment when our lady was led to discover who she was in an explicit way was at the moment of the Annunciation. Rejoice who you are, woven with our joy, full of grace. And our lady had never seen who she was in such a perfection. Suddenly, when the archangel comes to her, she discovers her mystery, full of joy, full of spirit, full of grace. And what is beautiful is that there's no reflexivity in Our Lady. She never starts from herself. She receives from God who she is. But also, there's such a purity of heart and such a humility linked to the truth that she doesn't hesitate whatsoever to proclaim that she is blessed. She doesn't hesitate whatsoever to proclaim the beauty, the jewel that she represents in the eyes of God. In a certain way, there's a true humility. There's no false humility in Our Lady. She discovers that she's a jewel and she joyfully proclaims it. She joyfully discovers that she's a jewel and she joyfully proclaims it. Therese, who is the famous sense of humor that uh, the Holy Father was mentioning. Uh, Therese, who doesn't hesitate at the end when she was in the infirmary and her sisters were taking care of her, didn't hesitate to tell her sisters, be careful because you're taking care of a saint. Uh, so, uh, so there was a sense of humor here. It's not a sense of humor of Our Lady. But this, this simplicity, this, this freedom of a true, humble person who recognizes the truth. If God looks at me as a treasure, then I am indeed a treasure. And what applies to Our Lady applies to us, by the way. Eh? Because the truth of who we are, Jesus, Jesus proclaims it in his own prayer, chapter 17, eh? when he tells us the way he looks at his disciples. Eh? They are a gift to me. Eh? So the truth of who we are in our littleness, in our, in our imperfections, in, in our lowliness, much lower than Our Lady. Huh? The truth of who we are, the fundamental truth of who we are, is that we are a gift of the Father to the Son. Huh? Something which should give us a lot of joy and something that we shouldn't be afraid of proclaiming if we are humble enough. Huh? 
Because the truth will set us free, and the truth proclaimed will set others free. And this joy of discovering the truth of who we are gives us indeed a freedom, and is part of our apostolic mission. If indeed we are called to continue the mission of Christ, COVID immersed, is not, first of all, by our sufferings and whatever sacrifice we are called to offer, but it's, first of all, this mission to continue to bring freedom to others. And the freedom that we can offer to us is essentially linked to the truth. The truth will set you free. We are those who bring the truth to others, and what is the most freeing truth that we can offer is that we are... Yes, we are gift of the Father to the Son. We are jewel in the eyes of God, even in our unfaithfulness, even in our sinfulness. Um, when Jesus looks at his apostles, his disciples as gift of the Father to him, is not yet Saint Peter and Saint Thomas and Saint John. It is before the cross when Peter is going to renounce Christ when Thomas will have difficulties to believe, when Philip will run away. So Jesus looks at them as clear sinners, and he knows what is in the heart of man, but deeper than this, as sinner as they might be, he looks at them as precious gift of the Father to him. And that's what we should always remember. When we look at ourselves, when we look at others, there should be this joy of recognizing in our faith and constantly a jewel, a gift of the Father to Christ. And we know very well that one of the consequences of sin linked to pride, linked to different things, is that our intelligence is extremely negative and that we constantly look at what is negative in others. We constantly look at what is limited in others. And instead of seeing a gift, we see all the imperfections and we judge and we criticize. We know all this. Huh? We have extremely negative intelligence and even worse, psychologies. And the light of faith should help us convert. We have to convert our intelligence. Huh? And part of the conversion of our intelligence is that we relearn looking at all, looking at God, looking at ourselves, looking at others, as Christ looks. We have to learn looking at the Father as Jesus looks at his Father. We have to learn looking at ourselves as Jesus looks at us. We have to learn looking at others as Jesus looks at them. And it's even a commandment. It's a gift given by Christ to us, but it's a commandment because we are called to love one another as Jesus loves. So we always look at the commandment of love. But the as Jesus loves implies that there's also the commandment to look at each other as he looks at us. And the other dimension of the commandment is not only love, but truth. And indeed, Jesus dies for the truth, dies so that we recover the truth in looking at God, in looking at ourselves, and in looking at each other.
because that's the only way to be free. The truth will set you free. And I insist a lot on this because we can easily disfigure the commandment of love by only keeping the first part, love one another. And we forget the second part, as I love you. And the as I love you, which we will see comes from the Holy Spirit, demands first of all that we learn to look as Jesus looks. It's a, it is again part of the commandment. The first part is quite easy. To love one another with the love of Christ is easy because it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. To look at one another as Jesus looks at us demands an effort because it demands the conversion of our intelligence it demands the conversion of our judgment and it even demands the conversion of our imagination and therefore our psychology uh, to love is an easy conversion comes from the Holy Spirit to love in truth demands a work and that's an essential part that we very often very very often forget when we look at the commandment given by Christ. For he has looked upon the lowliness of his servant. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. Eh? Which is again the freedom that the truth should give us. The mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Eh? That's really the joy of thanksgiving eh? of not only recognizing the dependence and the gifts, but the uniqueness that she is. Huh? She accepts and enjoys the fact that she is unique in the eyes of God. The Mighty One has done great things for me. It's really, I'm unique for Him. Huh? Again, something that we forget. The joy of seeing clearly that each one of us is unique. Not only unique because God has created, choosing to create each one of us as unique, and I was going to say in a unique way, as a unique human person, and also, I was going to say, manifested in a, in a special way by the mission of salvation, Christ has offered to us a unique merciful love. Love implies always, always at the natural level, that we offer to the friend a unique love. But what we do in a very imperfect way among human beings, the first one who does it perfectly is Christ. Christ offers to each one of us a unique love. The Father offers to each one of us a unique love as a creator and governing our life. And Christ offers to us a unique love of mercy, a unique merciful love. In a certain way, mercy allows the love of God for us to manifest itself as absolutely unique. It's difficult for us to see clearly that we are unique in front of the Creator. We know it, but we don't really experience it. Because what we express is that we are all human beings and uh, nothing extremely different from one to the other. We know it, that we are unique, but we don't really experience it. While when we sin, then we, we acknowledge, we experience, it's not an intellectual thing, it's really something that, that we leave off, 
we acknowledge, we experience a unique, merciful love of Christ for us. Uh, I don't experience my uniqueness as a creature. I experience my, my uniqueness in receiving the loving mercy of Christ when I've fallen and when I have the humility to come back to him asking for mercy in a certain way when does the prodigal son discover how unique he is in front of his father he is after falling and coming back to receive his mercy then he discovers that the father loves him in a unique way which in fact is source of anger in the elder son eh? he didn't know that he was unique before so much so that he was ready to take the money and go and enjoy life and he didn't know that he had a unique unique place in the heart of his father and thanks to mercy he discovers it the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name so that's very personal it's really the personal joy of Mary in front of her creator and of her savior in front of the one who wants to be all for her personally and then there's this new dimension of joy which we would say is more apostolic or more prophetic which is basically the same and therefore which finds a new extension in fact the joy of our lady extends itself on the whole church first of all she's mother of god so there's something extremely personal and then she's mother of the church and we said that the motherhood implies this mystery of fruitfulness of joyful fruitfulness his mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. Ah, one condition is that this joy of receiving mercy, this joy of discovering how unique we are for Christ, implies first of all this fear and therefore this poverty of those who know that everything in them depends on God, that everything in them depends on the transcendence of God, and the fear of God. It's not a fear at the level of justice, it's a fear of the source, without whom we cannot be anything. Without me, you cannot do anything, you cannot be anything. It's a good fear, and the fear of those ultimately were afraid of losing the presence of their souls, of being cut. And it's a fear of sin, but more than this is the fear of being cut from our souls, which is a holy fear. Uh, and ultimately the fear linked to even a pure love, the fear of displeasing our souls, uh, the fear of hurting the heart of God. Uh, so it's a fear coming from littleness. The fear of knowing that without God I cannot do anything. Without God I cannot be anything. It's a good fear. And the fear therefore of being lost without Him. Then, when there's such a fear in us, fear is the beginning of wisdom, uh, then we can be truly open to His merciful love because there's no pride in us. Pride is pretending that I can stand by myself. No. In front of God, none of us can stand by himself. 
we can only stand because of his merciful love. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. Now we really start in the prophetic part uh, of the Magnificat, where Our Lady proclaims the victory, uh, proclaims that the coming of the Redeemer, and she does it by anticipation of the cross, uh, proclaims that the coming of the Redeemer brings finally to humanity the freedom, the joy, the communion, the truth that has been lost because of sin. And we said because of sin, lies has entered into the world. Because of sin, there is no more communion, neither with God nor among man. There is no more freedom, okay. there is no more joy. And Our Lady, immediately with the Magnificat, with the coming of the Savior to her, recognizes and proclaims, by anticipation, the full victory. He has shown might with his arm, he has dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart, and the first victory of a pride, huh? the arrogant. Uh, and dispersed the arrogant of mind, uh, it reminds us of the Tower of Babel, where men, because of pride, were trying to unite themselves in order to get rid of God, and God had to disperse them, but to disperse them so that they would lose this false unity, this false security, of the Tower of Babel, being together, and therefore would go back in a state of insecurity in order to finally look for God helping and saving him, which we probably need uh, today also. Maybe we are not building the Tower of Babel, but we are building a type of culture very similar to the Tower of Babel, where what unites us is pride. Uh, and and uh, on a regular basis, God tries to disperse and to destroy the Tower of Babel in a very practical way when we look at the different disasters or crashes. Up to a point where, because we still don't understand, uh, he will indeed have to disperse all this and, and destroy all this so that finally we can be the little ones needing him, not finding security in each other, but finding security in him. And Mary sees that as fulfilled. Uh, so the good news is that the arrogant uh, are not there anymore, uh, not together. The bad news is that they have to be dispersed. And therefore, she announces a radical purification, a radical victory, yes, but at the price of dispersing, of separating, of breaking the false unities that we have created, the false communions that we have created. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, and same thing, but lifted up the lowly. Uh, um, not only she announces a true communion, uh, where there is not anymore this uh, culture of domination, but she allows also a new, a new, yes, a new type of communion, where the last becomes first, where the lowly becomes the centers. She herself praises God for having looked at her lowliness, and she announces that the same mystery will continue to take place. Not only will God be victorious over the proud and the arrogance, 
but he will bring a new order where the little ones, where those who are the most disfigured, become first. Yeah? And we see that in the choice, I mean, it is announced in different ways in the Gospel, yeah? unless we take the last seat, um, not in a symbolic way, but in a real way, manifested by Christ, when he says that, you know, whatever you did to any of those little ones, it is to me that you did it. I was in jail, you came to visit me, I was naked, you came to close me, I was disfigured, you came to help me. And which was the cause of the conversion of Paul, eh, who discovered that God in Christ had chosen to be the closest possible to the most disfigured. Eh? A mystery which, on one hand, is a scandal for intelligence, and on the other hand, is the new order that Christ has come to offer to the world, eh? where those who are the closest to God are those who receive the most mercy, where those who are the closest to God are those who are the most in need of Him. It's not an order of perfection, but an order of love and of mercy, which was not yet revealed in the Old Testament, and it is really Christ. That's the good news, and that's part of the good news, rejoicing the heart of Our Lady. So she's not only full of joy because of who she is, but who she is as a lowly servant. And she is also full of joy because she can announce the same mystery to be lived by each one of us with one condition that we accept to be part of those who are the lowliest, part of those who receive, who need to receive the greatest mercy. The good news and the fullness of joy can only be offered and received in this type of truth, within this type of order. The hungry he has filled with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. Again, it's a communion in hunger. Uh, it's a communion in thirst up to the point that it becomes a blessing and beatitude. And blessed are the hungry and thirsty. It's a communion, therefore, again said in different way, among the poor. It's a communion among us because of our poverty. And you see that at the moment in the Apocalypse Six seal. Hein? The six seal, you see, because of uh, you know, manifestations of the power of God, with earthquakes and all type of things, the stars falling, then finally, hide together in a cave, the rich, the poor, the slaves, the, the powerful, meaning, finally, a real unity among those who, in the world, would never have been living in unity, because of this poverty of needing the help of God. What is the real unity, rejoicing the heart of Christ, who prayed for unity? What is the real unity announced by Our Lady? The unity of all those who need God, who are poor enough to need Him. And it's a unity that Our Lady prophetizes and, and we discover how deep it goes when we receive the words of Christ in his own prayer for unity. It's not simply a unity among us, but let them be one as we are one. Uh, using our poverty, using our thirst, our need for God, God responds by granting to us a totally new unity 
which is not anymore duality between Adam and Eve, as beautiful as it might have been, but it's now nothing less than the unity between the Father and the Son. But condition, not only a personal fear of God, uh, in order to be able to receive mercy, but I was going to say a collective fear, uh, the capacity to recognize, to transcend all the differences in us, in order to be together crying towards God, uh, which was basically one of the education that Israel should have gone through during 40 years uh, in the desert. Uh, they had to be saved and enter in the promised land as a community, crying together for help, not only one by one, but as a community. And Our Lady there manifests that the joy that she has received personally will be offered to each one of us as a community, and this community is the Church, within the communion of the Church. He has helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy, a joy rooted on the faithfulness of God. Remember, when you remember something which is source of joy at that moment, it means that you have been faithful to, to what was said in the past. And God has, from the first moment of his revelation to Abraham, has manifested his intention to deal with us with mercy. God has always dealt with us with mercy, but he has manifested his intention, and even more than his intention, he has manifested it to Abraham as a promise. I will give you a fruitfulness greater than all the stars of the sky, obviously that's a gift of mercy and not of justice. And he has done it as a promise. He has helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy. And we will see that when we, when we speak of the mystery of hope. Uh, hope implies, demands that we remember the faithfulness of Christ, for us Christian hope, the faithfulness of Christ in his promises. But remembering is not an act of memory. Remembering in the sense of maintaining alive in us this promise. We see that when we speak of hope. We hope when we live now of the promise of Christ. And, and therefore when we live now of the fullness of the merciful love offered by Christ. He has helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy according to his promise to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. It's interesting to see that it ends up with, um, yes, uh, it, there's first of all this joyful look on herself, then there's this joyful discovery of the same mystery offered to all the poor, and then it ends up going looking at Israel, and therefore ends up with this joy of acknowledging the faithfulness of God, uh, acknowledging also the unique role of Israel, uh, not only the joy of how unique she is, but also the unique role of Israel.
which I think is important for us. Uh, we have, when we pray, to discover the joy of how unique we are. And when we pray, we are alone. Uh, how unique we are for God. And at the same time, rejoicing for the mission of the Church. Uh, and it is from there that this joy can be offered to many. And uh, when we are offering the good news, we never offer the good news alone. We offer the good news with the Church and through the Church. In fact, our message would be absolutely useless if it was not within the communion of the Church. So, a joy that Our Lady lives immediately after the Incarnation and a joy that she yeah, desires here by anticipation and later in a very practical way to offer in haste to the people of Israel and, and through Israel to the whole of humanity and the haste of Our Lady to bring this joy to Elizabeth first of all then the joy of Our Lady to bring in haste the good news to the whole of Israel and we see that in Cana in Cana she pushes Christ to give the new wine uh, and, and you remember the commentary of St. Thomas Aquinas on the Gospel of Cana wine is what rejoices the heart of man and therefore Our Lady doesn't want Israel to live of a fake joy with a wine which is not so good she wants Israel to live of the true joy and the fullness of joy new wine we see that the new wine implies the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's in Our Lady not only an incredible joy, the joy of the Immaculate, the joy of the Mother of God, lived and received in extreme poverty, in extreme littleness, but there's also a very apostolic joy, which said the joy of a motherhood, hein? the joy of bringing this fullness of life to as many as possible, and a joy leading her to be in haste. Huh? We all know that. And again, it will be linked to the mystery of hope. Huh? When there's joy in our heart, we can run. When there's not much joy, we slow down. Uh, when there's hope, and hope is always joyful, in our heart, we can run. When there's despair, we slow down. Uh, and the best example of this is Peter and John running towards the tomb, or rather one is running and the other one is walking. Uh, John, full of joy because of his hope in the resurrection, running towards the tomb in haste. Peter, because he has betrayed, heavy and not really freed in his need to receive mercy, slowing down and arriving late at the tomb. Uh. And finally, which is a fact, Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months. It's not the joy that Our Lady offers to Elizabeth and wants to offer to Israel and wants to offer to us, the joy coming from Christ, implies a stability. There's always in us, because of sin again, there's always in us such a difficulty to be stable. We can be joyful one day and then the next day down. Which is again the consequence of sin in us. In the same way, we can be peaceful one day and the next day we lose our peace. 
and the peace and the joy that Christ offers are stable. But in order to remain in a stable way in us, the major condition is that we remain in a stable way in a state of littleness, in a state of need, of poverty, in a state of those who fear the Lord, in the sense of the gift of fear. Or, said otherwise, the, why is our joy so unstable? Because of lack of poverty and pride. And therefore, linked to both, lack of littleness. And if Our Lady, we will see that, is given to us as a mother, she's given to us in order that we accept to remain little ones. Otherwise, we don't need a mother. We need a model. We need an educator, but not a mother. We need somebody to help us, but that's not a mother. If Jesus gives her to us as a mother, it's because the only way to be stable in the joy of the kingdom, and therefore the only way to be stable in the kingdom, is to be stable in littleness. And the whole education of Our Lady for us will be a re-education in littleness. And of course, it's not by accident that the one who best and first benefits of this motherhood is John, the youngest one. The one who has therefore the most docile or the most ready to enter quickly in this littleness. It was not easy for Peter to become a little one. He was ready to fight for Christ. He was ready to, I don't know, take care of his mother-in-law. But he was not really to be a little one, constantly protected by another one. He wanted to protect, but not to be protected. And yes, sometimes for some of us it is hard. We want to choose Our Lady as a mother, but in fact there's a tug of war in us because it is so hard to become a little one. We are still in control, in control in sometimes in good ways because we want to do good, sometimes in control in bad ways because we end up judging and measuring others. But we have developed a psychology of control and definitely not a psychology which is not the psychology of a child. So one of the roles of Our Lady will be, we'll see that, to help us Recover not only a littleness according to our criteria of littleness, but nothing less than the littleness of Christ. So it's not recover, but discover the littleness of Christ. Our littleness is not a mystery. The littleness of Christ is a mystery. The littleness of, again, of a beloved Son of God, which goes much, much, much further than the littleness of a human child.